Welcome to another episode of Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jen and Zach are with me as always. It is a beautiful sunny day here in Washington. All three of us feel perfectly well, except of course it's torrential apocalyptic downpour and Jen is barely surviving, but muscled her way in. Kudos. We will Purell down this entire studio <laughs> after we finish recording this because really we don't know what Jen has, but but it's not good. Send uh, her your best wishes. <laughs> we're just going to jump right into it. Right now as we speak, Donald Trump is in Europe. He just finished giving a rather jarringly fascistic sounding speech in Poland about we will fight with every drop of blood. We will fight to defend Western values. We're not going to talk about any of that for the moment. <laughs> we're going to talk about what comes tomorrow, yeah. which is a meeting that in a sort of literal sense, historic. This is Trump's first meeting with Vladimir Putin. We've been hearing about Trump and Putin dating all the way back to the campaign when Trump said Putin was a better, stronger leader, when Trump said he wanted to be best friends with Putin. Now we wonder if Putin helped Trump win the White House. So there's a lot swirling. But what I wanted to jump off specifically is there's one thing we know about this meeting in advance. We know that Vladimir Putin, who is canny and ruthless and once took a Labrador to a meeting with Angela Merkel because he knew she was scared of dogs, He's going to come prepared. He's going to come prepared to deal with Donald Trump. He's going to come prepared with a list of things he wants to get out of the meeting. And then we have Donald Trump, who has said publicly, his aides have said publicly, is not coming with any agenda. There have been stories about how none of his staffers know what he's going to say or do, that they worry about the optics. This is a man who was photographed laughing in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign minister after firing Jim Comey. So they worry about the optics of it. And some of the details leaking off in the West Wing from his own staff are kind of remarkable. They are briefing him with Twitter-sized briefing talking points because they think beyond 140 characters, he may not read it. They've in the past given him paragraphs where they mention his name at least once per paragraph because they know he otherwise won't read that either. And so I'd like to start there. Sort of what does it mean when we have, for the first time, Donald Trump sitting down with Vladimir Putin, for the first time, a concrete, serious conversation, but one of them comes with an agenda one of them, the one who's the inexperienced one, does not. I don't know exactly what it means, but I know that it can't be anything good. Right. The United States has a lot of issues with Russia right now, right? Russia is supporting Assad in Syria. The war in Ukraine is still ongoing at a lower level, so Americans don't hear about it every day, but it's still a big deal. Russian jets like to buzz American allies and even sometimes American ships and planes in both Syria and Eastern Europe. All of these things are provocative, destabilizing, dangerous behaviors that a normal administration would want to come in and have a talking to, or at least give Putin a talking to, about, and try to work out, tell him to knock it off, basically, at least in part. And we just don't know if Trump's going to do that because it's not clear the extent to which Trump cares about any of the things that a normal president would be expected to care about. Right, definitely. I think listening to and reading some of the the stuff like Gilhu was saying coming out of the West Wing, some of the leaks, I think one aide said, well, you know, it'll just be whatever he wants to talk about. Playing it by ear, maybe Trump style, definitely is Trump style, you know, playing fast and loose and just kind of saying what's on the top of his head or tweeting it out. But he's sitting down with Vladimir Putin, who is a former KGB officer, who is by all accounts, considered to be a master manipulator, at least on a personal level, maybe if not in terms of grand strategy, that's debatable. But in terms of, like you said, the the issue with Angela Merkel and the dog, he will be 100% prepared. He will have studied Trump. Trump's aides actually put together a psychological profile of Putin to try to give him. Hopefully he read it. Who knows whether that will factor into what he actually does and what he says and, and how he approaches the meeting. 
But you know damn well that Putin has very clearly looked at Donald Trump and his psychology and how he can push his buttons and how he can just completely ride roughshod right over him through the whole meeting. I'm trying to imagine a tweet-sized psychological profile of Vladimir Putin. Man loves power, comma, hates dissent, hates the West, exclamation point, sad, period. Trump or something also likes, along those lines. Trump also likes what was like dynamite graphics or something like that. It was that quote. And he really likes visuals. So maybe they could just do the visuals of Putin, like riding a bear and fighting a tiger, all of that. And that's actually goes to a point that I think is interesting, right? So both of these guys, this goes to something we talked about, I think, in the last episode, Zach, about how leaders want to be perceived as strong and how they want to project power to other world leaders. And this is this is going to be two people who are both obsessed with coming across as being macho and manly and powerful. And I kind of feel like it's going to be a bro-off, who is the strongest, who is the toughest, Putin is much more subtle when he wants to be. The body language alone is going to be really fascinating coming out of this meeting, right? So the handshake, we have the, I think you coined, Zach, the term Trump shake. Trump shake. Trump shake brings all the boys to the art, right? <laughs> Oof. Um, but I mean, seriously, you know, when Trump shakes somebody's hand, you know, he reaches out and then just grabs him and pulls them in. I'm really interested to see what happens with Putin. Just that alone will be a really interesting kind of thing to watch. And that's one of the things that I agree completely, Jen, and maybe we can unpack that in a second, but that's one of the things the White House itself seems most worried about. So they're worried about, one, what does he say? And then, two, what does he do and how does he do it? All of which is remarkable. You never had to worry about what would George W. Bush be photographed doing with Vladimir Putin? What would Barack Obama be photographed doing with Vladimir Putin? Pick any other Republican ran for president. But I think you're right. I mean, you have this question of what does the handshake look like? You have the question of, is Trump getting too chummy with Vladimir Putin, right. which will look very creepy. You've got two guys, and I agree completely, who each one look like the alpha male. I covered uh, the end of the George W. Bush administration, and there were two things about Putin that I still remember. One, Putin went to visit Bush at Kennebunkport in the Bush family home, and he made a point. It was supposed to be casual and dressed down. He made a point, later confirmed by the embassy, that he wore a size pants too small so that Putin could kind of like strut around looking deeply muscled. These weren't his actual size pants. He just wanted to look like a, a tougher, more muscled guy. And so that was yeah. his, that was him in front of the world at Kennebunkport, Maine. The most interesting thing I ever heard about Putin was from a senior member of the Bush cabinet who said that means that Putin all started the same way. They would sit down, sort of stare at each other icily, and then Putin would take out of his suit pocket note cards and go through them one by one, slapping them on the table. And each one was a Western grievance against Russia, real or perceived, dating back decades. So it'd be like, and then in 1956 with Sputnik, slap. And then in 1972 with Afghanistan, slap. Wow. This would go on for 10, 20, 30 minutes. Then the meeting would start. Imagine Donald Trump trying to sit still for 20 or 30 minutes before he's allowed to talk about any of the things that, Zach, you had mentioned before, plausibly he might want to talk about. It's just hard to picture just any aspect of the body language, any aspect of the feeling in the room, and then any aspect of what they say. Right. What's weird about this conversation is normally when we talk about high-level meetings between leaders, we don't talk about their personal tics, as you were just talking about earlier. We talk about the policy agenda, what they want to accomplish, what the ideas are. And usually, honestly, these top-level meetings aren't where the real work gets done, right? That gets done at a lower level and is hashed out before and then it's finalized by these high-level people. Here, we're in a situation where it's just not clear what the president wants, what, as we discussed earlier, what his agenda is, what his ideas are. And so, so much of it hangs, 
in part because of this lack of knowledge, in part because of the person, the president's obsession with personal appearance and the way he feels like he's being treated, whether he's being slighted, on the actual meeting between two men. And when policy can shift on a whim of the president, and it can and has in this administration already, these meetings take on a kind of outsized importance. And so too do the rituals, the right. handshakes, the photographs, the way that their aides talk about it afterwards. The sense of dominance matters a lot more to the world when two nuclear-armed powers meet than, honestly, it should. Right. And I think that's absolutely right. I think it's interesting, too, that—so I think originally the meeting was going to be just kind of the two of them offside at the G20. And then the White House came out, I guess, Tuesday and said that it was going to be, like, a formal meeting, so they would be sitting down, hopefully, with AIDS— and I, I know that Fiona Hill, who um, I used to work with at Brookings, um, she's now a top-level Russia advisor for the Trump administration. And there was one report, I think, in the Washington Post saying that, you know, she was really pushing to be there in the room for this meeting and that the top aides were really pushing because they're so nervous that Trump is just going to say something or do something completely just wild and essentially screw up U.S. policy or or something that could end up—I mean— even in that meeting, the, it was supposed to be an off-camera meeting with Sergei Kislak, the Russian ambassador to the U.S. I mean, he ended up accidentally outing an Israeli spy inside ISIS, just offhand. And that was just like a kind of a lower-level meeting. God only knows if he wants to look tough or look really cool and look how powerful I am with Vladimir Putin. I mean, we already know that he admires Putin for his toughness and his strength. It's kind of like, I guess, an idol for him. If you want to look tough and cool— who knows what he's going to possibly say? So just to finish the thought you began with, Fiona Hill, is she going to be in the room? We don't know yet. Um, as of last night when I was reading, we don't know if she's going to be in the room. Um, we know that she was pushing to be there. Hopefully, I know her. She's a very smart lady. She wrote one of the most definitive books on Vladimir Putin, knows a lot about his psychology and his history being you know, in the KGB. And I think it's called Vladimir Putin uh, Operative in the Kremlin or something like that. It's a really great book. But, I mean, she is seriously the person you would want to have in the room and you would want to have briefing Trump on, like, what this man is like, how this man will try to manipulate you. Here's how to get our talking points out. And who knows? We'll see. You know, we don't know yet. I mean, one of the things that strikes me as particularly interesting about this is, think back to the campaign. Candidate Trump sold himself in part as, I'm a deal maker. Right. Previous American leaders were dumb. They were stupid. They were foolish. They didn't know how to make deals. I, Donald Trump, do. So put me in. We'll have better trade deals. Countries won't laugh at us anymore. I can get us better deals because I'm a deal maker. Now, flash forward to President Trump. Not only has he so far not made any deals with other foreign leaders, he's not even attempting. There are no deals on the table where he's trying to hash out the details. Zach, you made the point before that typically with a meeting like this, you have lower level staffers preparing the documents. There's usually some sort of written document that both leaders sign off on, and the meeting is often ceremonial. Not the case here. But it is very striking to me that a man who campaigned as a deal maker is not only not making deals, but as far as we can tell, not attempting to make deals. It goes even further than that, right? He's the anti-deal president. He has pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. He has destroyed the TPP. It was the major uh, trade agreement between the United States and a lot of countries in East Asia. The TPP was seen as a way of cementing U.S. economic and political ties in East Asia as sort of an anti-China check, creating a trade block and a political block. But Trump decided that that was not in U.S. interests, and he campaigned against it, and he pulled out of it. And so all these international agreements that were linked to the typical ways the U.S. projects power, multilateralism, 
combining with allies to, to work on shared issues like climate change in China. These aren't the normal ways that Trump wants to work, right? And that's how deal-making has typically worked in the U.S. Trumpian deal-making is supposed to be more personal, more Trump goes in and he uses the force of his personality or his own set of agendas to solve issues. That's not really what happened in his business career. It's the mythology of his business career, but not reality. And it's certainly what's not happening right now, right? What's happening right now is a dissolution of traditional American alliances without very much coming in to replace them. That's absolutely correct. I think when you you talked about the mythology of Trump's career, right? So you have this kind of mythological deal-making Trump that doesn't necessarily jive with reality, especially when it comes to his presidency. And then if you kind of look at the flip side, you have Vladimir Putin. And there's a lot of mythologizing that goes on about Putin and his background and his career. But I think the bottom line is that as much mythologizing as has gone on, he is absolutely 100% someone who is ruthless in terms of pursuing what he thinks is the best for Russia. He will go in there with a tight, very specific agenda. And I think we should all probably also talk about what the Russian asks are and what ostensibly the U.S. asks should be. I know there's been some conversation about whether Trump would be talking about Russian interference. I think that's probably off the table, just given that even this morning Trump was asked point blank, yes or no question, do you think Russia interfered? Um, and he said, nobody really knows. I, I think it could be Russia. I think it could be other people. Um, nobody really knows. And then he went on to talk about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and how the intelligence community told him that. It's, it's actually better than that, right? Because then after he said, it's Russia, it's other people, who's to say? Mm -hmm. He then blamed Obama for not going after right. Russian hacking right. during the election. So the argument, uh, John Chait in New York Magazine had a very precise way of putting it this morning. The argument was the Russians didn't do it, maybe, but Obama should have punished them anyway for things that they didn't do, right? It doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't need to in Trump's Sort of I, I, I mean, that John Chapey was fantastic. Yeah. But I think also there's the broader incoherence hanging over all of this when it comes to Trump and Russia. For eight years, the Republican attack line at, at Barack Obama was, he's too soft. Right. Vladimir Putin's running roughshod in Georgia, the country, not the state. He's invading and annexing parts of Ukraine. He's stepping into Syria. And meanwhile, this cowardly, feckless Barack Obama is doing nothing. Flash forward to the campaign, now the presidency, you have the most avowedly pro-Russian leader probably in American history, certainly in recent history, one who constantly praises Vladimir Putin is strong, is tough, talks about how they could be an ally of the U.S. fighting ISIS. Problem is they can't, won't be, and don't want to be. But just this flip is fascinating to me. The kind of Republicans now as a party, the Republicans, the party of Barry Goldwater from Ronald Reagan, the really tough anti-Russian party, now in many ways, in many reasons, like Vladimir Putin. And I find that just absolutely startling. Well, it's certainly fair to say that Trump is the most pro-Russian president since Franklin Roosevelt, who gave the Russians weapons, but he had the excuse of fighting the Nazis. Trump does not have any such excuse. That's a good, good asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> asterisk, <laughs> fighting Nazis. That's really different, right? Every other president since then has been either confronting the Soviet Union or attempting to build up a democratic alternative in Russia, which clearly failed. So the most pro-authoritarian Russian president, I might say. I will in say, circumstances. I think that's a really interesting point that just kind of occurred to me. You say it's a nice asterisk, and it definitely is. You know, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll give him a pass. They're literally fighting the Nazis. But if you look at Trump's speech that he just gave in Warsaw, 
You can actually maybe argue that Trump sees the threat of radical Islamist terrorism, at least according to that speech, as a genuine threat to Western civilization, right? That's what he said. That's the kind of Bannon line, Steve Bannon. You know, there's a clash of civilizations. So if you're Trump and if you're in that worldview, then it might actually make sense, right? It might actually be rational to partner with Russia to fight radical Islamic terrorism. Now, whether... Radical Islamic terrorism is an actual threat to Western civilization is highly debatable. I would say that it's not. No, definitely not. Um, Definitely not. And whether partnering with Russia is the best way to deal with that threat is also debatable. And I would say it's not the best way to deal with that. But I think it actually does make sense in a lot of ways. And I think looking at Trump, I think even the way he deals with the question about Russian interference in the election actually does make sense in some ways from Trump's perspective, right? If his issue is that he doesn't want to delegitimize his election. Why would you want to talk about this? It does make sense in kind of that sense that, yeah, I don't want to bring this up because if they interfered, they interfered on my behalf, and that therefore calls into question whether I was legitimately elected. And he loves to go on and on about his electoral college win and all of that. And he lies and says he also won the popular vote and things like that. So I think some of Trump's actions do actually make sense if you're coming from inside Trump's head, which— admittedly, is a terrifying place. I want to drill down on that point that you made about Islamism, because I think it's a really good one, right? It is the case that Trump sees jihadism as an existential threat for the United States. Right. He said that over and over and And not just the United States, for the West. For the West, in general. Yeah, he's very clear on that point. But in a meeting with the Russian leader, right, what do you ask for in terms of that? Well, the thing that he said on the campaign trail over and over again was help in fighting ISIS in Syria. Right. But the things that Russia could help with, essentially air power and helping crush ISIS territorially, are basically being accomplished by the U.S. coalition on its own. ISIS is about to lose any territory it had in Mosul very quickly. Raqqa, its capital, is about to fall or will I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but it will happen. In the okay, f- DOD in the doesn't know what the timeline is yeah, either. Fair, so. <laughs> fair enough. The point is the territorial aspect of the campaign against ISIS, which is what Russia could have really helped with, is nearing completion. And then the next step will be preventing it from rising again due to popular grievances in Iraq and Syria and the chaotic civil war in Syria specifically. Russia is not good at post-conflict stabilization. Their approach to things like that is mostly to kill anyone who they think might be a threat, yes. which obviously to the U.S. is not a viable solution, and not we don't want to be partnering with them to do that. So like, what, what is it that Trump wants from Putin in concrete terms when it comes to fighting terrorism? I, I just have no idea. Yoki, do you have any ideas? Um, I, I feel like this is one of those questions that in an alt-universe where you had a other president who was going to sit down with Vladimir Putin after praising him as a strong leader— we have a general sense of what that alternate universe president would ask for, right? He or she would say, one, cut it out with election interference. Do this again, and we're really going to hammer you. Two, help us figure out a way in Syria that Bashar al-Assad, your friend, your ally, leaves power. You might be the one to determine it. We're okay with that, but you can help deliver this, and it's sort of like a suck-up almost. You know, We recognize how powerful you are in Syria, so help us find a deal where he leaves. Arguably, that is what Barack Obama did I think he stumbled into it, but when Russian diplomacy helped get rid of Syrian chemical weapons, that was a deal brokered by the Russians. Theoretically, you could have something similar here. Again, all universe, you can imagine this. And something that would be along the lines of help with Russian intelligence sharing. Russian intelligence is very good, in part because they get it in brutal ways. Help with trying to figure out and and tamp down other places where ISIS is coming up. 
Theoretically, Russia might help in Yemen or Libya. You can imagine other asks. They could be military, helping fight ISIS in other countries, intel sharing, elections, and also stop with Ukraine. Those would, I think, be the concrete asks. It is very hard, Jen. You, you just hit this, and I agree. It's hard to imagine Trump asking for any of them, but certainly not the election interference one. Actually, I was a little bit surprised to hear Trump's speech this morning. He did kind of call out Russia in a way that I was a little bit surprised. It seemed like it was kind of in a very non-Trump way, like telegraphing his his moves, right, what's, what's coming. So he urged Russia to stop its, quote, destabilizing activities, end quote, in Ukraine and elsewhere, and its support for, quote, hostile regimes, end quote, um, including Syria and Iran by name. So he did actually say things. I mean, he said Ukraine. He said your support for Syria. He said your support for Iran, which are three pretty big kind of clear things that the U.S. would like to call out Russia on. So I think that's interesting. I mean, if those are the things that he's telegraphing, again, I doubt he wrote that speech himself. I'm assuming a lot of policy people went in and kind of included those things. Well, we know Steve Miller, a White House aide who has noted sympathies to the extreme right of the Republican Party, did the did most of the drafting okay. of that speech. Well, I don't know what his positions on Russia are, but it definitely had stuff in there that was harsher on Russia than I think I would have expected in this speech a day before he's supposed to sit down with Putin. So I do think that that does potentially, if he stays on script, uh, signal that he might actually say some stuff about Ukraine, say something about Bashar al-Assad. You know, one thing we do know about Trump is that for some reason, apparently just because he has children and does have a heart somewhere in there, the chemical weapons attack on children in Syria by Bashar al-Assad really did affect Trump in a seemingly visceral way, in a way that he hasn't really responded to a lot of other attacks and, and other kind you, of you world You saw sort issues. of a, an, an emotional side. Right. Yeah. Him. I mean, he was like babies, little babies. You know, he seemed to be really personally affected by it. So it would be reasonable to expect that he would bring up something like that. Even if you don't stop support for Assad, could you just maybe try to get him to not use the chemical weapons? Because then I'm going to have to react and then I'm going to have to do this. And and also because it's just terrible, stop doing that. I could see that as a reasonable ask that Trump would make of his own volition. Whether he goes any farther anywhere else, whether he feels like bringing up Ukraine, that's all an open question. And so let's flip it. So if we have a, a possible sense of what he might possibly ask, and, and Jen, I think you're right that whoever drafted the speech, Trump stayed on message in the speech. Right. These are kind of the things that you would hope that any U.S. president would hit. It was sort of a conventionally, except for some of the rhetoric about with our last drop of blood, we will defend the West. Take that part out, but policy-wise, it's pretty conventional. Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Right>. Asterisk. <laughs> uh, it all comes back to the asterisk. But flipping it, what are the Russian asks? Because Putin will come with a long list. I mean, what are going to be the Russian asks? My sense is that Russia's top priority when it comes to the West is Eastern Europe and NATO. Russia has always been concerned about establishing a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. And... It's always been concerned about the influence of NATO in that area. So I would say they want the U.S. to knock off its increasing support for allies in Eastern Europe. Most notably, just to take a recent example, sending 900 troops to Poland as part of an, a mission explicitly designed to deter the Russians from more Ukraine-style adventurism. And the Russians really want the U.S. to back off or— even try to push the Ukrainians to a kind of Russian-friendly solution to the conflict. There are a number of different ones, but 
The Ukrainians right now obviously are not interested in capitulating in any way to Putin. That's the kind of thing I think that he would want the most and would be his top priority. It's always been about the Russian sphere of influence for him and reestablishing a kind of neo-Soviet, neo-Tsarist empire. Right. I don't know what he would expect the U.S. to do in recompense. Right. right. Normally, you could imagine, and people did imagine beforehand, an exchange between Syria and Eastern Europe where the U.S. backs off its anti-Russian provocation in Eastern Europe in exchange for some kind of Russian pressure on Assad to end the conflict and, and leave power in Syria. But it doesn't seem like Putin would want to give that up immediately. Also, he's gotten more invested in Syria over the course of time. I agree. I think that that's sort of the general frame. But let's be more specific. Tangibly, what are the specific asks that Putin will have? Because some will be sanctions, some will be return. Sanctions are a good one. You know, return diplomatic compounds that the right. U.S. and have if that's seized. a specific ask that Putin is definitely. I read a bunch of interviews with Russian politicians and Russian kind of ambassadors and former ambassadors in advance of this meeting, and they were all saying like that's absolutely on the list. This is the return of those diplomatic compounds that the Obama administration seized or took back. Yeah, can you explain why those are so important to Putin? I'm not quite sure myself. I think it's partially symbolic. I think it's partially that, you know, you took what's ours and this has been our diplomatic compound forever. But also because it's, we're saying diplomatic compound kind of in air quotes here. It's kind of generally accepted that this is a spy base. This is where a lot of the Russian diplomats who are quasi-diplomats and quasi-spies kind of operate. There's this one that's like this big kind of mansion, you know, manor outside of D.C. I mean, I think Home and Gardens or something did a whole profile on it a while back, which is bizarre. Come, you know, hang out with the Russian ambassador and have tea. Just don't open any of the locked closets. Right, exactly. Exactly. You don't want to know what's going to fall out of there. Who's the dude in the trench coat in the corner? Right. See the gardener? <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I definitely think it was certainly symbolic because that was it was symbolic when we took it. So it was in response to the Russian kind of meddling and you know the sanctions that the Obama administration did actually respond to. And they said, you know, fine, then we're going to take these compounds and you have to get out. So I know that's one specific kind of symbolic thing that will be sort of a symbolic reset in the sense of like, let's go back to before Obama, you know, did this knee-jerk move or whatever. I know there's also a Russian talking point about how there's kind of a rising anti, you know, Russian sentiment in the U.S. That's something that Putin has been pushing really hard. It's something that Russian media has been pushing really hard. I think it's likely that Putin will kind of try to address that. And then there's also a talking point that just came out, I think, today about North Korea and Russia and North Korea that I did want to flag. The U.S. State Department has essentially accused Russia of helping the North Koreans by hiring North Korean laborers. And the, the argument is saying that it essentially violates sanctions or at least the spirit of the sanctions because the money essentially goes straight to Pyongyang. Russia, I think the Russian foreign minister or a Russian spokesperson came out this morning and was saying this is absolutely ridiculous and, you know, we're completely able, completely allowed to hire North Korean workers and America is trying to break the bond between Russia and North Korea and trying to interrupt our relationship. So I know that's definitely probably going to be on the table in terms of what Vladimir Putin wants to bring up because Vladimir Putin does actually pay attention to those kinds of things in a way that Trump, it might be news to him what they're even talking about. Part of this that's interesting is there's, I think, a tendency everywhere, certainly in the press, and I think we're as guilty of it sometimes as other people, just to assume that a president is all-powerful, that there are kind of no constraints. So if Trump goes into this meeting and promises thing X, thing X will actually happen, which isn't true because there are sanctions that Trump can lift. There are things right. he could do on his own. He could return the compounds. And quick parenthetical on the compounds, 
There was satellite imagery showing these after Obama had ordered them to be seized. These are, as you say, these are big mansions surrounded by a lot of landscape land. And after the seizure order came down, you saw this army, this array of unmarked black vans drive up. And these tough-looking guys load up stuff, boxed up looks like equipment, and drive it all away. So, yeah, I think it's safe to say these were not just the ambassador's clothing that right. took 12 black vans with no windows. You don't put all your clothing in a burn bag. But the, the sanctions relief that Putin is going to ask for to a degree is an impossibility because some of these can only be lifted by Congress. There is no way, no way that even this Republican Congress is going to vote to lift sanctions. In fact, the opposite. The Senate just voted 98 to 2 on a new sanctions bill that was designed specifically to make it hard for Trump to lift these new sanctions. So Putin will have asks. Some of them he'll get. Some of them Trump could give if he chose to. But we should all bear in mind that there are a lot of things Putin could ask for that he cannot get. And if anything, Putin himself has made Russia so toxic on Capitol Hill, especially so toxic when it comes to this president, that things he might have plausibly gotten from a different president he actually won't get. Right. I think it's important to hammer that point home because Putin often gets portrayed as a master strategist, and I think that this is often quite wrong. Take the election meddling, right? So there's no good evidence that the election hack actually helped elect Donald Trump, right? It doesn't seem to have been decisive. James Comey's letter, that might have been a decisive event, but there's no good statistical evidence suggesting that Putin really altered the course of the election. What he did do was infuriate the entire Democratic Party, turn them all against Russia almost uniformly, and made Russia toxic in American politics to the point that Trump's pro-Russian agenda was in a lot of ways DOA because, as you say, there are a lot of parts that required Congress, and Congress won't let him do it now because you had existing hostility to Russia in the Republican Party. Russia's favorabilities have declined substantially overall in the American public. And so Putin has managed to piss off a lot of Americans and make sanctions relief and detente in a place like Syria or Ukraine harder without meaningfully increasing Russia's influence over the United States in any other sphere. Although, actually, I want to push back on a little bit because statistically, pro-Russian feelings are actually on the rise markedly, especially among Republicans and especially when it comes to Vladimir Putin. So- I agree that they're True, but not enough to, to compensate for the Democratic declines. I'm not sure that I'd buy that either, because Republicans right now are the ones who control Congress and the Senate. So if you have Democrats who are out, out of power who don't like Vladimir Putin, Russians who are in power who do. But what's interesting about the, the increasing love for Vladimir Putin among Republicans is that there's both a macho element, like this is the tough guy, if only our presence were as tough. And then there's an interesting social element. Putin has very wisely portrayed himself as a defender of Western values, especially right. Christian values, yeah. against this rising tide, not just of Muslim extremism, but just Muslims, and against the rising tide of gay marriage and abortion. So a lot of the things that the Christian right here desperately thinks should be fought harder, Putin is saying, and in some cases doing, those exact things. There are horrific purges right now in Chechnya of gay men who are being abducted, tortured, and killed by Russian-backed Chechen security forces. Putin has banned adoption by gay couples, he is avowedly anti-abortion. And so there's this interesting thing where he's becoming more popular both because the geopolitics, but also the social issues. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, it's also, there's a strange kind of nexus forming between the alt-right and the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, unofficially, it's not that the Russian Orthodox Church is allied with the alt-right, but the alt-right has essentially made the Russian Orthodox Church this kind of like standard bearer of Western Christian civilization, which is just a fascinating kind of weird 
thing, a development that I would not have expected. Um, and I do think, just to kind of go back to the point that you guys were kind of going back and forth on, I think it's important to kind of clarify when we say that there's a perception of, of Russia and Putin that's rising among Republicans. When you actually look at the Republicans in Congress, you tend to see the opposite, right? Like, that's where you tend to get a lot of, like, staunchly anti-Russia, you know, the Russia hawks. And they're the ones who are trying to stop and, you know, put in these these measures that, that Trump can't lift the sanctions. So I do think it's interesting that Trump seems to be at odds with the establishment part of the Republican Party, who are still very cold warrior mindset that Russia needs to be pushed back at every measure. So I do think that's interesting to see that this kind of schism that's developing between like the Trump part of the Republican Party and then the more establishment side of the Republican Party. And I think that dynamic that you've identified, and I think that dynamic explains what we were talking about earlier when it comes to Trump's view of Russia as an ally against Islamism. Right. It's not so much that Trump and the sort of alt-right sympathetic part of the White House, by which I mean Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, are thinking in specific policy terms, right? If there's one thing that marks those people, it's that they don't really have a good and detailed grasp of policy nuance. Right. It's that they think in broad civilizational arcs and ideological sweeps. So they see Putin's Russia as, as you were both just saying, an ally in the fight for the West against immigrants and against Islamists, right? And and so they don't believe necessarily that Russia is an ally because of specific policy things that it's doing. Exactly. But because Putin has positioned himself and sold himself as being on the right side of the quote-unquote civilizational divide between the West and Islam. And if you read old Bannon's speeches, it's very clear that he thinks that Russia is helping uphold traditional Western values and Western identity against the oncoming non-Western horde, more or less his language, right? He's not exactly subtle when it comes to why he doesn't like these people. Right. I think it's also just important to point out, since we're talking about the civilizational argument, that the vast, vast majority of victims of Islamist terrorism are Muslims in the Middle East and other places that are not the West, quote-unquote. So just to point that out. Yeah, and I think just to put a cap on, on this segment in this conversation— it is going to be fascinating to watch the reaction to this, not just among policy circles, not just among journalists, not just among people on Capitol Hill, but the polling data. Right. I'm very curious to see what comes back after this meeting when the American public is asked, what do you think? Our colleague, Lindsay Maisland, just got back from a trip to beautiful, bustling Linden, Michigan, population of about 3,000. And she was there to do a story, she should be posting today or tomorrow, on what people in bustling Linden, Michigan think about Trump and Russia. And what she heard was very interesting. She heard them say, basically, eh, there's something there, but it's all overblown by the fake media. And then they immediately pivoted to the Trump talking points from the campaign, which they still believe. So fundamentally, it was, eh, there's something with Trump-Russia. We don't like his tweets, but he's a fighter. He's shaking things up. He's his businessman, his dealmaker. So they still buy the Trump of campaign mode. They're not worried about the Trump of actual presidential mode, which I found totally fascinating. Quick side note. They also warned her to get out of journalism while she can so that she wasn't infected by the fake news media. They, they wanted uh -oh. our young colleague to save herself. Oh, we've things, already infected her so badly. Before things went, went horribly. Sounds so creepy, Jeff. <laughs> I love you, Lindsay. And with that, I'd like to turn to the second segment. We're going to turn to Elsewhere, where we can talk about things that are not the U.S. And this week in Elsewhere, we're going to talk about Venezuela because the following things have just happened. You've had... 
Congress, their version of Congress, get attacked by a mob that pulled lawmakers out and beat the crap out of them. You had the Supreme Court, not bombed, but close to bombed and attacked and lit on fire. You had the Attorney General be fired by two different parts of the Venezuelan government. This is all happening in a matter of days. Take it away, Zach. So the reason that there's this kind of chaos in Venezuela, right, the immediate reason is that there's a stark division between the parts of government, right? The Congress is controlled by the opposition, right? which is opposed to the increasingly authoritarian president, Nicolas Maduro. And the people that beat up five lawmakers, five people were dragged out and beaten. The people who attacked them are pro-Maduro folk, whereas the Supreme Court has basically backed Maduro at every point in time and has even attempted to seize legislative powers from the opposition-controlled legislature, And so when a disgruntled intelligence officer dropped grenades on the Supreme Court, which didn't detonate, but thankfully no one was hurt, he did so, and he said explicitly, because he thought they were part of a criminal government that is Maduro's government. So those are the immediate causes. The deeper causes are Venezuela's ongoing economic crisis, right, where according to some figures I saw from January, the last year the government's uh, sorry, Venezuela's GDP went down by roughly 19%, and the inflation rate was 800%. <laughs> That's astonishing. That is beyond economic collapse. Like, you hear stories a lot about Venezuelans not being able to afford basic goods, toilet paper, shampoo, etc., but, it, but it's much, much worse than that. Diseases are on the rise. Crime is one of the highest in the—or the crime rate is one of the highest in the world— Venezuela, which used to be one of the wealthiest countries in Latin America, is becoming a failed state. And it's those circumstances that are giving rise to civil conflict over control of the government in a place that used to have elections and peaceful transitions of power. Absolutely. I think what's really interesting, too, is about who the opposition is in terms of the people who are actually out protesting. And you're seeing something like 40 protests a day around the country, I mean, just massive mobilization. There are kind of three different factions of people who are involved in the so-called opposition, um, some of whom are actually protesting and some of whom aren't, but who are opposed to the government or to what's happening in the government. So you have the kind of old guard that was pushed out when when Chavez came to power, you know, when Hugo Chavez came to power. Let's let's pause for one second. And because, Zach, there, there was a lot packed into what you just said. And Venezuela is something that we all collectively don't follow as much as we would follow ISIS, Russia. So let's pause briefly and just unpack a lot of the things you said. So let's talk before we dive into some of the opposition makeup and, and sort of previous Venezuelan leaders, who the current Venezuelan leader is and how the government is structured. Because I think that will help make a lot of this much, much, much clearer. Right. So the current president of Venezuela is a man named Nicolas Maduro, who took over from Hugo Chavez, who was the last leader of Venezuela. And really, Chavez was the start of the current crisis. So Chavez was a, a very hardline socialist. And he nationalized large swaths of the economy, set up a very complicated system of exchange rates that was designed to allow poor people to get access to goods. And also, after a U.S.-backed coup uh, attempted to overthrow him and briefly did for a very, very short period of time, became increasingly suspicious of the opposition and increasingly hostile to individual rights and press freedoms. So... Under Chavez, you got this dual move towards a nationalized economy and a increasingly authoritarian government. Chavez died in 2013, and Maduro was his handpicked successor. 
this government only managed to succeed in, in a basically broken economic model due to soaring oil prices. So when oil prices started to collapse relatively recently, the Venezuelan economy, because Venezuela has one of the largest oil reserves in the world, started to tank as well. And without the profits from sky-high oil prices, the Venezuelan system no longer managed to function, and the economy started getting worse and worse, leading to increased protests against the right, Maduro but, government. But what I, but what I, what I want to just drive home for people who, like us, don't follow this very closely, is the very basic structure of Venezuela, because that's not clear, always. So it has a president. That president is taking on too many powers. It has an elected parliament, which is currently controlled by the opposition. In general, we'll dive into that in a second. And there's a, a Supreme Court. So largely, it's structured along the lines of the way the U.S. is structured, with one major exception, which is parliament has some control over the executive branch that doesn't exist in the United States. But you have a president, you have Congress, you have a Supreme Court, and that's where a lot of this now is playing out. That's where sort of the competing politics is playing out. The parliament is controlled by the opposition. Supreme Court is basically a weapon of the president. A colleague of ours, Pedro Rosas, did a good freelance piece for us in May that talked about how the Supreme Court, which at that point had just dissolved parliament, had mounted a judicial coup. But so that, that's the government structure. And that's now when we talk about the opposition, the people who are in the streets, 40, roughly 45 of whom have been killed in the streets, that sort of sets up who they are and what, and what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there are three parts to the opposition. So the first part is you have these kind of old guard politicians who were pushed out when Chavez came to power, what, 1998, end of the 90s. So you have these kind of old guard who have tried every which way possible. They've tried electorally. They've tried coup attempts. They've tried everything to kind of get rid of, of Chavez. Didn't work until he finally died. But Maduro is, as you said, his handpicked successor. So it's still like the, the Chavismo kind of system that, that Chavez put in place. Then you have the kind of younger, newer politicians who are also super opposed, but they didn't go through all of this trying everything to get rid of Chavez. They're younger. They have kind of fresher ideas. Um, but because they are younger and have different ideas than the kind of old guard, they tend to not necessarily see eye to eye. And so you have this tension there. And then you have broader, lots of poorer people. So you have students and, and people like that, a lot of whom are actually not protesting because they can't, because they're busy trying to literally survive. Um, but it was interesting. I, I heard some reporting from on the ground in Venezuela during one of the protests. And it was really fascinating because they were saying that it's like there are all classes here, you know, you have this this woman who was wearing these gorgeous pearl earrings and she was in high heels and she was out there very well-dressed, classy. And then there was this student who had a bandana around his face and was wearing tennis shoes with holes in them. And they were out there together kind of protesting in solidarity. And so there is that kind of collective push that's happening. But the problem is that at the higher levels where actual movement could be made, there's a lot of disconnect. There's a lot of fractious politics happening. So because the opposition can't really come together and have very specific focused program, that's a huge part of why the opposition isn't as successful as it could be right now. So what, what does the opposition want? It depends on, on who you want and who we're talking about. But the poorer people, a lot of them actually liked the Chavez model, right? They benefited a lot from this kind of high social spending. I mean, during during the Chavez years, you know, in the early years, so 2004, 2008 were probably the peak, I guess, good part of, of Chavismo. So you had massive inequality going away. You had poverty on the decline. You had death rates going down. You had 
rising kind of wages. You had everything like that. So it was a really good, in a sense, for like the poorer people. There was massive kind of social growth. There were high economic growth. And then, of course, that all collapsed. So there were a lot of people kind of at the lower level who aren't actually opposed to the kind of Chavez economic model. They just want that all to come back. Um, And then you have the people who are really angry about how the economy has been mismanaged. And we can talk more about how the economy has been mismanaged, but who basically want Maduro to stop the authoritarian moves that are happening. Um, And there's also this kind of paralysis that's happening in the top part of the government, right? So you have like the Supreme Court being a weapon versus the parliament. Um, That's also crippled their ability, the government's ability to enact economic reform, which is kind of perpetuated and made it, you know, even worse, this massive economic crisis that's happening. For the people who, who are listening may wonder a question I think we all wonder sometimes as, as we're writing about this and editing this, of why should we care? I mean, if we're sitting here in America and we have all these other crises surrounding us, ISIS, Russia, et cetera, why should we care about any of this? My answer is that it's a horrific humanitarian crisis. Right. This is a situation in which people are going without basic necessities, diseases that were eradicated are making a comeback. And crime is skyrocketing skyrocketing in response to the basic failure of the government to provide for key necessities, right? Uh, To me, it it matters less whether or not there's a U.S. strategic interest here and more the fact that people are suffering tremendously. And they're suffering because there's a government that is so unwilling to rethink its basic approach to the economy in the world uh, because it's paranoid in part and in part ideological that it's unwilling to make necessary compromises and work peacefully with an opposition. So you might get the total collapse of government, even a slide into civil conflict, which previously no one would have warned about Venezuela as a fairly well-off country. But now you talk to experts on civil conflict, and they're really, really worried about Venezuela, right? This is a situation that has the potential to be unlike anything that we've seen in the Western Hemisphere in recent memory in terms of— humanitarian crisis. Right. There's a piece I read in The Atlantic recently by someone who is, I believe, Venezuelan, saying it's not civil war that I see coming. I see just absolute anarchy. Because his point was that because you don't have this like unified opposition versus the government who both have ideologies and asks that are completely at odds with one another, that you actually have this kind of fractious chaos going on. And that what you're going to see is just a descent into full-on anarchy and to essentially a failed state. And that's going to produce massive instability, massive potential for violence. We're already seeing violence. Um, So I think absolutely agree on the humanitarian side. Like, that's definitely the number one issue. But I think it's also, if you do want to look for the broader geopolitical or whatever, link to it, just having a massive country that used to have a lot of wealth and has a lot of people. I mean, there are, what, 30 million people in Venezuela being a completely failed state that's kind of problematic. And I think there's one other aspect to this that that is worth flagging that takes you a bit beyond the borders of, of Venezuela which is that we talk a lot about, write a lot about, monitor a lot, whether democratic institutions worldwide are beginning to weaken or crumble, how fragile they are, which I think is something that many Americans 10 years ago would never have thought. We would never have thought democracy itself is fragile. We're seeing that here. We're wondering about what happens when there's a constant assault on the judiciary, on the media. What happens when you have a president who wants to be a strongman? Trump right now is in Poland. Poland's government is increasingly itself authoritarian. This is not a freely elected democratic government in Poland. It's one that is also sort of adopting this kind of right-wing authoritarianism. And now you have that in Venezuela. And that's what's interesting to me. I agree with you about the humanitarian crisis. I think that's fascinating and sort of heartbreaking. But this is also a government where the president of the government didn't like parliament. So he had previously stocked the Supreme Court with more judges. 
something that was tried here in the 40s and failed, had that Supreme Court, and this is very literally what happened, hold Congress in contempt, all of Congress in contempt, dissolve Congress, take all of its powers for itself, and give them all to him. And what's happening right now, the specific trigger that set off these current protests is that Maduro, this increasingly strong, democracy-hating president of his country, said he's going to have a new assembly write a new constitution for Venezuela. Part of it is all the powers need to go to him. Part of it is that constitution is not being written by the elected parliament. It's being written by hand-picked allies of his. And so that's what's interesting to me. You have not just a failed state, not just a humanitarian crisis, all of which would be terrible on their own, but you have yet another country, another one, when we're already tracking so many where this is happening, drifting slowly, slowly, slowly away from democracy and then gradually picking up steam as it gets closer to authoritarianism. There are two scholars, uh, Yasha Maunk and Roberto Foa, who have written recently about what they call democratic backsliding, wherein democracies that used to be considered established, secure, functioning countries have started to see institutions erode. One of their key examples is Poland, uh, where you saw after the Cold War what appeared to be a a relatively strong democratic government being suborned by a far-right populist movement that took over recently. Venezuela is their other key example, where you have a far-left populist Mm -hmm. movement that, to accomplish its own goals, became increasingly hostile to democracy. Now, their argument is this was preceded by a growing popular discontent in those countries with democracy, with a general sense among the population that democracy was failing them. And you've seen some of those same indicators in polling data in the United States, so that's hotly disputed among experts. So their worry is that what you see in Poland and Venezuela, not the economic crisis, but the political crisis, is something that could happen in the United States or other Western European countries. Well, not Western European countries, not other Western countries is what I meant. Obviously, the U.S. is not in Europe. But more seriously, the point is that some of the indicators that their research suggests preceded the Venezuelan crisis are happening in other countries. I don't know whether or not their theory of how Venezuela came to collapse is right, whether or not it was because the population let it happen or simply because you had two authoritarian-inclined leaders in power, and when you have authoritarian-inclined leaders in power, they can sort of do what they want. But the point is that this should be a real warning sign for people who are concerned about the fate of democracy. They should look at Venezuela and see that these things are impermanent, that history doesn't only move in one direction, and that if you have a government that's bent on undermining democratic norms, they they can do it. And I think that is an eloquent, perfect, brilliant, Zach be champion way of ending worldly for this week. Not sure if that is a adjective, but it is now. (laughs) Wanted to thank our engineer and producer, Peter Leonard. Want to thank all of you for listening. If you like, and we hope that you do, subscribe. Tell other friends of yours to subscribe. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Help this community, this audience grow. We are thankful to you for listening and subscribing. We hope more of you will in the future. Have a great week. Bye.